Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading the sermon scripture passage tonight. Um, tonight, we'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 through 25. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can also look on your phone. We also do have some um, on a table in the back that you can grab, and you can keep that as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 through 25. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man." So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died, from the people, there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went, and Arana, I'm sorry. And Arauna said, why has the Lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arauna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arauna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not off offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is God's word. Thanks, Betsy. Well, good evening, Doxology. It is good to be back with you guys. For those of you who are new, maybe joining us for the first time, my name is Steve, lead pastor here. It's great to have you with us, and it's great to have you, those who are joining us on the live stream as well. Thanks for joining us. So, Luke, I'm going to put that pen there. Hopefully it doesn't mess you up later. Um, so we, uh, we're on the final passage of the life of David in, in 2 Samuel. And Samuel, in large part, is about David. So 
David's the main human character in Samuel. Samuel's ultimately about God's covenant faithfulness to his people, but David's the main human character. And when David enters the scene, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And then even when Jesus comes along, the son of David is the most common title that Jesus receives, and he accepts it willingly. And so we have to ask, if David is a man after God's own heart, when we've already seen David fail abysmally, like do some pretty horrible things, right? And now Samuel ends with David sinning again. So like if you're writing a narrative about this great King David, why do you end the passage with this? And that's what we're going to see. And it's a challenging passage in some parts, but I hope it encourages you as well. Uh, has it has encouraged me in surprising ways as I've studied this past week. So we'll look at this passage under three lines. And first we'll look at David's sin. Like what was it that he did that was wrong? Number two, we'll look at God's mercy. And then when we see those two, that will then allow us to see, okay, what is David's greatness? So verse number one, David's sin. Number two, God's mercy. And then number three, David's greatness. What is it that makes David a great man? Okay, so verse number one, David's sin. So in verse 10, it says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So David here has just counted the fighting men. And after counting the fighting men in Israel, he says, oh my gosh, I've sinned greatly. And then after this, God judges Israel for David counting the people. So your first question needs to be, what's wrong with counting? (laughs) Right? Like, why is David and God getting all bent out of shape over God ordering a census of the fighting men of Israel? And so Go back to verse 1. We didn't have it in the reading, but if you have your Bible, please uh, take it out. We're just going to walk through some of these verses in the beginning of chapter 21. So verse 1 says of chapter 24, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. And then David goes and does it. Now, this should trouble you. This is one of the most troubling passages in the Bible in some ways, and I know a number of you talked about it during community group this past week. And Because it looks like God is the one making David sin, and then he's holding him and Israel accountable for sinning, right? Like that language, God incited David to sin. All I'm going to say for now is that God did not make David do anything that wasn't already in his heart to do. Okay, God doesn't go find people looking to do good and then say, hey, like, why don't you try sinning over here? Okay, the book of James says God doesn't tempt anybody. God's just, he's not preventing David from doing sin that was already in his heart. I realize that some of you may have more questions about that, but I was, as I was thinking about this verse, it's either take another 10 to 15 minutes and like go into all the intricacies of it and then miss the main point of this passage or just let you all know for now, God isn't making David do something that wasn't already in his heart to do. And so we do welcome hard questions here. And so if that's something you're still wrestling with, you know, please let's talk about it after. Okay, so um, ultimately it's David who decides to number the people of Israel. And so we have to ask, okay, It must not be the fact that he counted people that's wrong. Because in Exodus 30, God gives Israel regulations for when you take a census, here's how to do it. Okay, so it's not the counting that's wrong. And if it's not the counting that's wrong, it must be the motive. Okay, so it must be the why David's counting that makes it wrong. So why did David count the people? And the first thing we need to notice is the text doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why exactly God was angry at the census. And so... There's a lesson, it could be a whole sermon on its own, but there's an immediate lesson there that we need to obey God even when we don't understand why. 
especially in the West, the ruling um, moral program that we adhere, adhere to tends to be pragmatism. Because if I don't see why God says this is wrong, or if I don't see why this is harming anybody, why is it wrong? You know, and then we only do if we can see the pragmatics behind it. But often we need to obey because God is infinitely more wise than us. Right? So we need to obey even when we don't know why. Um, so we don't know exactly why, so we need to approach this with humility. But there are a couple things we can strongly infer as we look at this passage. And the first thing we can infer is in verse 3. So Joab, David's commander, who note was not a man of moral rectitude. So if Joab is cautioning David to not do something, you should probably know, okay, David, you probably shouldn't do this. And he says at the end of verse 3, why does my lord the king delight in this thing? And that word delight is key because that same word delight was used just two chapters prior when David is composing a song to God, and he's saying he's rejoicing in the fact that God delights in him. And then David himself wrote a psalm, Psalm 40, where he says, I delight to do the will of God. Same word. And so, but now David, right, is not delighting in the things of God. He's delighting in counting the fighting men. Why does that matter? Well, this is the same David when he went to go face Goliath, right? He says, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, but salvation is of the Lord, He's trusting in God, his Savior. But now what he's doing is he's delighting not in God, but he's delighting in the strength of his military. Because there's a pride there. There's a trust in self there. That's the first thing. The second thing we can infer why is this wrong is because it hints at military aggression. It hints at military aggression. So we know from the parallel account in Chronicles that this census comes right after Israel had achieved a number of victories. And there's, uh, there's peace in the land. And at this point in time, Israel had a volunteer army that they could call upon to defend the land. So why is David counting all of the fighting men and assembling a standing army ready to go? There's one reason you do that. And it's the same reason why all the other nations would count their fighting men as well. And that's so you you number your people, and then you number the people of your neighbors, and you go, okay, I have 200,000 more. And you go in, right? And you go in and get them. And so it looks like this is what David is about to do, is he's gearing up for military aggression. And this goes exactly against what God has been telling David and telling Israel this whole time. God says, Israel, you must be a light to the nations. So you must not be defined by oppressing the vulnerable within you, going out and executing violence on your neighbors, because that's what all the other nations do. You're to be a light to the nations so that they're attracted to me. David, however, he's once again become blinded by power, and it seems like he wants to enrich his own nation by oppressing other people. And by creating a broader buffer zone, right, between himself and other surroundings. And so that's probably why he was counting the fighting men, which, which explains why, why does God decide to judge Israel? Because you say, okay, well, still, that sounds kind of harsh, God. You know, you're condemning, judging Israel for counting. But when you look throughout the scriptures, the, one of the primary things that evokes God's judgment is violence. You see it over and over in Genesis chapter 6. Why does God send the flood? Because the world had become filled with violence. Why does he send Jonah to warn Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to repent? Because of their gratuitous violence. In Ezekiel chapter 7, God tells the Israelites, here's why the Babylonians have taken you into exile. Because violence and pride has budded within your nation. Okay, so by God judging Israel here, what it is, it's a severe mercy to stop Israel and David from further spiraling into violence and oppression, you see? So that's David's sin. Um, And again, we're not told explicitly, but we can probably infer that's what's going on here, and that's why God has such an issue with it. Okay, so next number two, let's look at God's 
mercy. God's severe mercy on David and his people. So look at verse 11. So after David says, oh my gosh, I've sinned, you know, take away the iniquity of your servant. Verse 11 says, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do to you. So God gives David three choices of judgment. They're all terrible, but he gives them three choices. And the first one is famine. The second choice is his foes routing him and his people. And the third choice is pestilence or plague. And so note that with all of these choices that David has, what's the common denominator? No matter what David chooses, it's going to erase Israel's hope of military dominance. So if a famine comes for three years, that's going to put Israel into an economic recession, and they're going to become dependent now on other nations for food. If you remember um, when Joseph uh, saved Egypt and made them able to supply the other nations with food during famine, same thing with that, what happened to Israel. They'd be dependent on other nations. If their foes rout them for three months, that's going to destroy their military. And then if he chooses plague... Um, what's going to happen is it's going to destroy their military as well. So if you see in verse 15, David chooses option three, and it says when the plague hits, 70,000 men die. And that word for men, that's not gender neutral, talking about humankind in general. It's actually men specifically. Um, so that's you know, getting rid of more people who can achieve Israel's hopes of military domination. So David chooses option number three. But here's the thing. What's key is why David chooses option three. And this is amazing. So David's faced with a choice. And in verse 14, David says to Gad, this prophet, he says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Literally, his mercies are many. But let me not fall into the hand of men. Now, what David's saying here is he's admitting that he sinned. And he's saying, God, I deserve judgment, and you are just, and so you need to judge, but I'm going to, put my hand, I'm going to put myself in the hand of the Lord. And so he chooses option three, and that's because the first two options have a much more human component, right, with famine dependent on other nations, enemies routing them. But number three, where it's a plague that God sends that's strictly in the hands of the Lord. And so what David's saying is, I know you're a just God, and you have to judge. However, your mercies are many, and so I know that somehow you're going to stay your hand and save me and save my people, even though you're a just God. And what David's demonstrating here is a, it's honestly a far more sophisticated and true and therefore more liberating knowledge of God than you or I have. Okay, so what David is drawing on here when he says, God, you're just, however, your mercies are many, is he's drawing on God's own insistence of who he is, all throughout the scriptures. And here I'm drawing in large part from Dane Ortland and Thomas Goodwin who've done a great job flushing this out. But over and over again, God describes his character this way. So one example, one of the biggest examples is Exodus 34 when Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And how God responds is he gives Moses the clearest window into his character that he's yet to do in the scriptures. And he says, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is Exodus chapter 34. I'm the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And 
What's amazing there is what's, what, when God says, I'm slow to anger, so the Hebrew phrase there is long of nostrils. You say, okay, what the heck does that mean? That, that sounds weird. Okay, think about a bull who's pawing the ground when he's angry. He has a short snout because he gets, he gets angry quickly. So he, the, the bull is short-nosed. He's, angry, he's angered quickly. God, however, is describing himself as long of nostrils. It takes an incredible amount of goading and provocation to make God angry. So God's extremely slow to anger, but what is God quick with? Mercy, graciousness, steadfastness, companionship. Like what God is telling us is there are certain things that I'm on the edge of my seat eager to do. This is amazing because so if you catch me, I'll just be honest, and a lot of you know me well enough to know this is true. If you catch me off guard, Okay, like before I have a chance to compose myself, what are you, like I have to deal with something that I wasn't expecting, what's most likely going to come out of me? Probably grouchiness or impatience or some form of selfishness. What God is saying is when you catch God off guard, so to speak, what's most likely to come out of him, it just like a pinprick, is mercy, graciousness, steadfast love. God is the exact opposite of you and me. Okay, because you, there's a reason why the book of Hebrews in chapter 1024, it says, provoke one another to love and good works. Because you and me, like, what naturally flows out of us is pettiness and impatience and selfishness. So we need to provoke one another to love and good works. The only thing God needs to be provoked to, we're told in the scriptures, is anger and judgment. What God springs forth with, like water out of a dam, is Goodness and mercy. And so here's why this matters. Because I think one of, the, one of the devil's greatest victories in your life may not be that sin that you continue to return to, but getting you to believe and to harbor cold and dark thoughts toward your rock and your redeemer. Believing that he is somehow indifferent to your longings, indifferent to your pain angry with your missteps. But what God insists all throughout the Old Testament and then is most clear when Jesus comes along is, I am so quick to give you my compassion when you're scared. I'm so quick to give you my wisdom when you don't know where to go. And I'm so quick to give you my only son when you say I'm lost and a sinner and I feel so alone. Because that's who God is. And that's what David is putting himself, that's why he's putting himself in the hands of the Lord. And I know a lot of you, especially over the past six months, but even over the past year or two, you've seen by God's goodness and mercy that when you put yourself in the hands of humans, like David doesn't want to do here, or in the, in the hands of things of this world, it doesn't deliver. Right? When you put yourself in the hands of your career, when you put yourself in the hands of a love relationship, when you put yourself in the hands of your health or the stability of our nation, do you get mercy and stability and steadfast love in return? No, you don't. You only get that when you put yourself in the hands of the Lord. And so that's why David says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy and great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. Okay, so then God sends the pestilence, and the angel comes along. He sends the plague. It's horrible. 70,000 men die. 
And in verse 17, David says, uh, it says, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. And it says the angel of the Lord relented in verse 16, as it was stretching out its hand toward Jerusalem at the threshing floor of Arunah. So what David's saying is, this is incredible. What David says essentially is, these are but sheep and I'm the shepherd. Strike me, the shepherd, so that my sheep can go free. Let judgment fall on me so that my people don't have to receive judgment. And God responds. And in verse 18, when Gad comes to him, God tells David essentially, he says, your concept is right because I am overflowing in mercy. But in order for atonement to take place because I am just, a substitute needs to be provided. Atonement needs to happen. And so he tells David, go to the threshing floor of Arunah. This is where the angel pulled back his hand. And he says, erect an altar there at the threshing floor of Arunah. And David does so. And at the end, it says the plague was averted from Israel. And so what's going on here, this threshing floor of Arunah is charged with meaning, this location. And we know from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that this is the same location, it's on Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered up his son Isaac. And it's the same place where after this account, Solomon builds the temple. And so what we have here at this very location where David erects the altar is way back in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac up to sacrifice him, and God tells him, Abraham, stay your hand. I'll provide a substitute. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 24, the angel of the Lord's hand is over that place at Mount Moriah. David says, you know, strike me, the shepherd, so that my sheep can go free. God averts his hand, and he provides a substitute. And then the temple of Solomon is built there, where year after year, sacrifices are altered for the atonement of sin. And then a thousand years later, after this account, what happens? On Mount Moriah, right near the temple, right near the threshing floor of Arunah, you have Jesus Christ, who called himself the Good Shepherd. And he's on the cross, and this time the hand of the Lord comes down on judgment but this time the hand of the Lord does not avert. It comes crashing down on Christ. Why? Because Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, said, strike me, the shepherd, so that my sheep can go free. And it's this, how, this is how you know that God's mercy always triumphs over judgment. This is how you know no matter how dark things are in your life, no matter how uncertain you are, no matter what you've just done, that God is always so much more quick and it's so much more natural for God to extend love and compassion and not condemnation and judgment. And it's this reason why you need to always put yourself in the hand of the Lord because it's only the hands of the Lord that bear the marks of the nails as he suffered condemnation in your place. That's the mercy of God. Okay, so now that we've seen David's sin and God's mercy, what is the greatness of David? Okay, so David's called a man after God's own heart, yet here he's sinning again. David, or Jesus, willingly receives the title Son of David over and over again. So why, what is commended for? Why does Samuel end here? 
And this is why. So go back to verse 10 in chapter 24. It says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. Do you you remember the last time that David David said, I have sinned against the Lord? It was in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, right when he took Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. That's the last time he said, I've sinned against the Lord. But there's a key difference here this time when he's saying, like, oh my gosh, I've sinned against the Lord. God, please forgive me. The first time David sinned, he was in denial to what happened. That's why it took a prophet walking straight into his courtroom and slapping the king and waking him up to what he had done. Also, David was facing the consequences, like, oh my gosh, God's going to, you know, let my sins, consequences pass down, you know, into my children and my children's children. He was worried about saving face. What's Bathsheba's family going to think? What's Uriah's family going to think? What's the, what's the people going to think? Hey, Nathan came to David almost a year after he took Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. Okay, he'd been covering up for a long time. But here, note that David's heart is struck before the prophet Gad comes to him. His heart is struck before the consequences come. David doesn't even know if consequences are going to come. So what's going on here with David is it's not a prophet who's smiting him. It's not consequences that are smiting David. It's his heart that's smiting David. When it says David's heart struck him, he was conscious stricken. This is a man who has grown. He has grown in grace. He has grown into the likeness of God. We saw last week that one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is when you look at the commands of God, you don't say, okay, what's the minimum I have to do so that God doesn't punish me? What's the minimum I have to do so that people think I'm a good person? One of the ways that you know you're growing into the likeness of Christ is you, you listen to the size of Jesus. You, you look at the heart of Jesus and you ask, Jesus, what makes you happy? And that's what David is doing here. His heart strikes him because he's realized, like, oh my gosh, I've completely gone against the heart of God. And this is even more remarkable than the first time because power and greed are so much easier to be in denial over than adultery and murder. You know when you're committing adultery or murdering. It's very easy for all of us to justify when we're abusing power or greedy. So what David is showing us here is what spiritual maturity is. A spiritually mature person repents not less, but repents more. Because even as your heart grows in character, even as you obey more, you see more and more of your heart in your life that's walking more against the heart of Jesus, more of your heart that's selfish, and you confess quickly, fully, truly, hopefully, before other people, before God, A spiritually mature person, when you are criticized, even if the person's mostly wrong, you don't think you're better than that person. You don't even say, you don't even understand the full picture. What you do is you look at them and you go, you have a point. A spiritual baby, if you're a spiritual baby, you say, yeah, I follow Jesus, but the thing that really makes me happy is when people see me as an intelligent person, if people see me as a creative person, if people see me as somebody in the know, A spiritual mature person repents quickly, daily, truly, hopefully before God and others. And this is what David is commended for. Notice he's not commended for his victory over Goliath. He's not commended for his military strategy. He's not commended for the fact that he united Israel and he's Israel's greatest king. And he's not primarily defined by his sin. 
Because what true greatness is, is not self-sufficiency and competence, but it's neediness and a desperate dependence on your Savior. True greatness is not being seen as special, but it's a life marked by repentance where you continually see more of your sin and repent and run headlong after Jesus Christ when you see what he's done for you. And most of all, true greatness does not come from yourself, but it comes from the one who went to the cross and as he hung on the cross from the depths of his soul, looked at you and said, strike the shepherd so that my sheep can go free and have life eternal. Let's pray. God, you are awesome. Uh, uh, We thank you so much that you gush forward in mercy and give us your strength um, so much more quickly than you're angry with us or impatient with us, Lord. Um, Will you please help us to be people as individuals and as a church? that live out what true greatness is according to your heart, Lord. Help us to be a body and people marked by repentance and dependence on you. And may we be a light to our surrounding city as we do so. Thank you so much for everything that you've taught us through Samuel. Help us to apply it to every area of our lives, most of all. Help us to see in greater detail the heart of your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.